You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to another episode of The Spear. Uh, my guest on this episode is James Enos. James, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, John. So you are a lieutenant colonel in the Army. Um, I wonder if you can kind of give listeners a little bit about your background when you came into the Army, uh, what you've done so far in the Army. Sure. So I graduated from West Point in 2000, uh, branched infantry. Uh, First duty station was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, where I was a rifle platoon leader, uh, anti-armor platoon leader in Company XO. Uh, then went to the transition, the uh, captain's career course, and was at Fort Benning uh, for a little while uh, before going down to 6th Ranger Training Battalion down at Eglin Air Force Base, where I was an RI for about a year. Uh, after my time as an RI, I went to Fort Carson uh, to be a rifle company commander uh, with 1st Battalion 9th Infantry, the uh, Manchus, um, did my company commander time there, and that's when I deployed to Iraq for the, the second time. After that, I got selected to come back to West Point and teach. So I came back, did my PhD at MIT, taught in the systems department for a few years, uh, went to the joint staff, and then came back, uh, got my PhD in systems engineering, and I'm back at West Point now teaching in the systems department again as an academy professor. Okay. So we're going to tell, uh, you're going to tell a, a story, I guess, share a story from uh, 2006 in Ramadi, Iraq. Was that from your first deployment? So that was actually the second deployment. Uh, the first okay. deployment was when I was a platoon leader in the 101st, and that was during the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Okay. So, um, and then back in 2006, were you as a company commander? Yes. I was a rifle company commander for Delta Company. 1st Battalion, 9th Infantry. Okay. Um, I guess before we kind of get into the story, how different were those two deployments, both to Iraq, but one clearly, um, at least for the early parts, very conventional, um, and then and one, you know, into the thick of, you know, this country. We're sort of kind of just trying to hold it together. There's sectarian violence. We're starting to talk about counterinsurgency tactics and things like that. How different were those, especially given that you were in a, you know, a small unit leadership position in, in both cases. Sure. So, uh, you know, in some ways they were, they were very different, right? I mean, during the, the invasion, right, we were focused on um, 
really getting to, to Baghdad as fast as possible and defeating kind of the conventional Iraqi army. Uh, but that quickly turned into an uh, insurgency type of fight uh, while we were there. Um, so the 101st pushed forward up to uh, Baghdad, uh, Najaf, Karbala along the way, and then out towards the west and finally wound up in uh, Mosul, uh, where we kind of stationed there for the duration of that first deployment. Uh, and that's really where it started to transition more to the not so much counterinsurgency because there wasn't much of an insurgency up there, uh, but it was much more of the nation reconstruction type of mission, right? So building schools, getting the government functioning again, those type of things. Uh, a small amount of insurgency uh, started a peak in Mosul when we were leaving, uh, but really not like it was in Ramadi in 2006, right? So when we went to the Anbar province in 2006, it was really a full uh, counterinsurgency, right? And, and depending on where you were in the country, I think there were completely different perspectives on what was going on. Um, yeah. Much more of a kinetic fight out in the West in Anbar, right? Where Baghdad into the South and even up in Mosul was much more of a soft, um, you know, non-kinetic type of engagements where they were focused on rebuilding the nation. But uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was still pretty entrenched out in Ramadi with the Sunnis uh, to the point where I think there was a Marine intelligence officer because we fell under the Marine division. So that was a whole nother experience. Um, sure. Who basically claimed that the, the Anbar province, it, it was lost. Um, and that was right before we showed up. And that was probably summer of 2006, just because the insurgency had been so entrenched and uh, the tribal militias and the tribes, the sheiks in the area, it basically just completely went over to Al-Qaeda. Um, and without that local support for the government forces of Iraq or our forces, it was really difficult to kind of root out that insurgency and figure out who was who was good and who was bad, right? Because we couldn't tell. So when did you uh, when did you get into country in 2006? We got there in October of 2006. Okay. And the... The situation on the ground there was we barely controlled our own operating bases and, and yeah. lines of communication between some of the smaller combat outposts and um, main operating base. I mean, we get mortar attacks on the FOBs, you know, almost every day. Um, just moving back and forth to resupply some of our combat outposts was a full combat mission because uh, there'd be IEDs, ambushes along the way, um, improvised rockets. So it was, it was a pretty, pretty bad situation uh, in general um, and really didn't control much outside of our small perimeters. So how aware of that were you kind of in advance of the deployment about what the conditions were like, you know, what, what, what a small slice of Ramadi that U.S. forces, coalition forces really had control over? So before the deployment, really not much. We were actually slated and our brigade headquarters went to Baghdad. So we were planning on really a completely different uh, operating environment. When we got to Kuwait, we found out we were going to Ramadi, and, um, which actually kind of benefited us because our battalion was a battalion that came from Korea to Iraq, and they were actually stationed on the same forward operating base. right? So my NCOs knew the area. They knew some of the people. Um, 
you know, we kind of joked around because like my first sergeant who was there as a platoon sergeant before, uh, we found his old wall locker. We found his old dustpan because uh, they were staying in the same barracks, right? So we knew a lot um, and had some good knowledge about Ramadi. So that, that benefited us greatly just because of the depth of the NCO Corps that we had, uh, had experience there. Um, so they understood what type of fight we were getting into. Um, but that really didn't happen uh, literally until we were on the ground in Kuwait and we found out that we were going out to Ramadi. Okay. So you get into Ramadi in October. Um, if, if, you know, if, if memory serves me, um, you know, what we think of as the battle of Ramadi has really kind of been raging for, you know, several months by that time. Um, what was sort of your first impressions? Um, so the first impression, I think the, the unit that we relieved was, um, they kind of gotten stagnant. And I think that is true across Iraq, right? They'd really gotten stagnant in the operating bases and the, the combat outposts that they had. Um, and the, the tribes in the area, um, were, were not very open to working with us forces. What and do you so mean by stagnant? They just, uh, so they really just kind of stayed on the, uh, on the fobs, right. On the combat outposts. Um, and really the focus was keeping a couple key routes through the AO open, right. They, okay. it didn't seem like they, uh, gone on the offensive as much, um, to try to find, uh, the insurgency, right. And, and it was, it was difficult, um, just because of the, the nature of the relationships with the tribes, the police people, um, you know, Ramadi itself is actually a pretty dense uh, city. I think it's one of the more populated cities in Iraq. And so it was um, a situation where they were really focused on securing the fobs. And like I said, I mean, there was, you know, most of my combat power was either providing security or just going back and forth between the outposts and trying to keep those routes secure. Okay. And was the, I guess, was the impression um, that your unit uh, was going to take a different approach, maybe a more aggressive approach? Uh, definitely, right. So we had, um, our, our leadership was, was different. So we had a lot of um, company commanders, uh, the battalion commander, who all came from Ranger Regiment backgrounds and more of the uh, conventional special ops side of the house, right? So we had a much more aggressive, uh, I guess, if you will, uh, perspective on things. And we had trained for that too, right? So uh, our battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Chuck Ferry, his philosophy was, you know, if you train and prepare for that high-intensity conflict, right? It's always easier to kind of ratchet it back down a little bit. You know, if we had to go to more of a nation building type of perspective, right? If, if you go in uh, to the conflict with a perspective of, Hey, we're going to be building schools and we're going to be helping the, the um, economy out and stuff like that. Right. Or a little softer approach, it's harder to ramp it up. Right. So his perspective was let's train, focus on live fires, focus on offensive type operations, um, gathering intelligence to drive ops. You know, that was his focus 
And that really kind of uh, led to what our perspective was going into Ramadi. And did that begin then the, um, you know, a little bit more offensive operations? Did it begin right after your, essentially your, your right seat, left seat ends and the, and the, and the redeploying unit takes off? Um, I, I would say right after we, they they had had some plans on the, the shelf to secure, uh, the main kind of downtown part of Eastern Ramadi. So the more, um, densely populated, you know, city type of environment. Um, it was called the Malab district cause it was based around the soccer stadium that's in Ramadi. Mm-hmm. And the plan was to basically go and secure that and clear that out. Right. That was what the, um, initial plan was. And that was probably, uh, cause now we're talking about maybe mid November, um, by the time we transitioned and got all our forces up to, to Ramadi. And, and that quickly changed, uh, because the, the situation on the ground changed. Um, and it was, uh, it was actually Thanksgiving day when the, um, Al Qaeda in Iraq really went after one of the tribal sheiks in our area. Um, and he was up in the rural areas just to the, east of Ramadi, and there was a U.S. advisor embedded with this tribe because at the time it was just the beginning of the Anbar Awakening, right? So a couple of the tribes that started to come on board with us, really more over in the western part of Ramadi, mm-hmm. um, but we happened to have this one uh, sheik in the rural area who was working with some U.S. advisors and... Um, Al-Qaeda obviously didn't like that. And so they attacked his uh, tribe, right? And his small militia that he had, because each of the tribes in the area kind of had their own little militias sure. uh, for security. And, and that really flipped and turned the, the corner for us, right? So um, he gets attacked. We basically get a cell phone call uh, through this advisor that, you know, that the, they're under attack and what can we do to help, right? So we... Got some ISR on station, some close air support, and we're able to help support them. And then we pushed up, you know, we kind of, the tank commander threw together an element uh, with our Bravo company, one of my platoons, uh, and some other forces, whatever we could find, um, because our combat power was just so strung out, just trying to secure ourselves, and and pushed up to um, help out and kind of help secure that, uh, that sheik and that tribe up there. Okay. And then that's when we completely shifted focus, right? We we're going to go downtown and kind of clear that out. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the enemy and the situation has a vote in everything you do in combat. So we completely shifted focus to look out towards the more rural areas um, where a couple of these tribes had started to support us, right? And that's really um, what you need in, in those areas, right? Because we can't tell who the insurgents are versus who the you know, the friendly tribes and friendly people are, but all those, um, sheiks and, you know, the local population, they know, right. They can point them out in an instant of who's not supposed to be there and who's causing problems and who are the insurgents, who's Al Qaeda. Um, so once we started to get that support, um, we were able to take that as an advantage and, and use that. Okay. So the specific kind of story that, um, 
I want to jump into took place then on 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 December fourth, I believe, uh, which is you know a month and a half or so after you've gotten into country. It's now a couple or a week, I guess, or so a week or two weeks maybe since this kind of Thanksgiving incident where your mindset starts to shift. So, kind of, can you kind of provide some context for December fourth? Is this like a, a battalion sized mission that your company is going to take part in, or what is it? So it was part of a battalion effort, but it was really just my company, right, was the, the main effort. Um, we had our alpha company um, was securing the Sheik. They traded out with the, our Bravo company. Um, and then the battalion commander really focused the battalion, you know, freeing up combat power so we could put an entire company, um, you know, on the, on the offensive. And the idea was that uh, Route Michigan is basically the main east-west supply route across uh, Anbar, right? So it's like a four to six lane highway that runs almost from the Syrian border all the way into uh, Baghdad and goes right through Fallujah and Ramadi, um, Mm -hmm. one of the main highways that goes through there. That was kind of the the southern um, boundary, if you will. And then there was a small choke point between the Euphrates River and Route Michigan. And there were a couple of kind of just, you know, improved roads that went through there. And so the idea was to attack uh, into that area, cut it off, and that would prevent the insurgents from moving east and west uh, through the area, right? So they could basically stage out further east away from U.S. forces, come in through this choke point, and then attack either our bases or the tribes uh, that were in that area. So the the idea behind the mission on uh December 4th was to go into that area and secure that crossing point. There was a crossroads there that we were trying to, that was our main objective. And what was the, what was the terrain in this part of Ramadi? Cause it's still, I mean, it's pretty central. Um, but as I understand it, once you cross the Euphrates, it, it starts to become a little bit more sparse. Is that correct? Yes. So even right outside of Ramadi, right? So this was not a built up area. Um, more, more rural, Right, so still some houses, but definitely more spaced out. Um, some uh, date groves, right? So the palm tree groves uh, yep. where they were growing dates. Uh, some farmland, some open spaces. Um, you know, in small, I guess, villages for lack of a better term, right? Uh, sporadically placed, but much more open, much more rural than you know the the city part of. Ramadi. Okay. Okay. So what's the, um, you're the company commander then this is a company mission. Um, what's, what's sort of, you said there's a crossroads that's your objective. What's your sort of, um, plan? What do you brief your platoon leaders? Sure. So it really happened in kind of two, two phases initially was the, the idea. Um, the night of December 3rd, right? So in darkness, we would move up, uh, on foot, secure the crossroads um, and a little bit further to the east so that we could observe the main uh, route, basically the high-speed avenue of approach that's coming from the, the east. Uh, secure those two locations and then search the immediate area, see you know, if we could find anything. We really didn't have specific intelligence that was telling us that, hey, there's a cache in this location or anything like that. We really had um, no links to that area, right? We didn't have any um, 
low-level contacts. Our MI detachment didn't have any sources in the area, so we were kind of going in a little bit blind, other than the fact that we knew it was probably going to be um, several IEDs. You know, the, the roads would be dangerous, and there's pretty, pretty good potential for uh, insurgent activity in the area. And then in the morning, when uh, first light hit, I would bring my first platoon, uh, would come up and clear the, the road up to where we were at so that we would open up a supply line. Um, and then we could bring in uh, supplies with my XO, had a small team, uh, do resupply, um, any Kazavac, any of those type of things. But that would go the, the next morning was was the idea behind that and just basically clear the road uh, make sure there were no ieds you know if they found them they would get eod in to reduce those and uh, open up a, a line of supply for us okay and so can you walk us through i guess what happened that day then sure so the uh the night of the third right was was pretty um uneventful uh, we moved in no no real issues uh, we're able to secure a couple strong points in some houses that had some good overwatch. Um, I was with the third platoon kind of in the center overwatching the, the crossroads. My second platoon moved out a little bit further to the east. Um, the initial building that they were going to go in was completely destroyed. It had been leveled uh, you know, sometime in the past. Um, so they moved into a spot kind of in some uh, date groves so that they could have some good fields of fire and could observe the road uh, coming in. And then we really kind of settled in for the night without much uh, happening. We didn't even really find anything as we searched the immediate area, right? Um, and then the next morning, right, December 4th, uh, first platoon came up. They came up through the road. Um, we're able to make it up to our location. Um, and... You know, that was probably by mid-afternoon, early afternoon. And uh, part of their platoon pushed forward to the buildings that they were going to uh, occupy, which were probably three or four-story high buildings, which was pretty big for that area, um, just so they'd have good observation and really see up and down the Euphrates River, uh, too, in case insurgents were kind of moving across the river. Um, and then half of the platoon was stayed at my location. I was just you know, meeting with the, the platoon leader um, to talk to him about, you know, okay, what do they, what do they find? What kind of the next steps are? Cause you know, the rest of the plan was we'd secure this area and start to clear to the Northwest to where our ALF company was with the, the tribe that we had kind of made friends with uh, mm -hmm. so that we could clear that area out of any you know, potential insurgents and link up with, with that uh, element up there. Okay. So what time in the morning um, does, I, I mean, what's your sort of, what time in the morning do you, do you start moving and start clearing? Um, you know, that was probably seven, eight o'clock in the morning. It, it was pretty, pretty early. Um, it's, we wanted good visibility uh, just because, you know, finding IEDs in the dark is, is um, impossible. Yeah. Right. Um, so it was it was well into the sun up, and the the idea was that be very deliberate as they went up the road, because um, if we we're going to use this to, to resupply ourselves, we want to make sure that it was clear, uh, so that somebody didn't 
see a large combat element, let them pass through, and then come back later when it's you know just you know a couple of gun trucks running resupply. Um, so we were pretty deliberate about that, and so I would say they probably got up to our location. It's probably about thirteen hundred, uh, so just just in the afternoon, um, when everybody kind of started to get settled into their initial positions before the uh, before we really got started to get attacked. Okay, and are you moving mostly on foot, or are you mounted? Uh, we were moving on foot, right? So all those elements were all on on foot. The only mounted elements that we had was um, my EXO had a resupply Kazvac team, which was uh, a few gun trucks and a uh, you know, an old one one three tracked vehicle uh, that we mm -hmm. used as our medevac vehicle. And I mean, you said you kind of described the terrain. You said it's pretty um, sparse. It's pretty rural. There are these date palm groves. Are there people? Are there? I mean, are you seeing civilians at all, or is it, you know, just not a lot of human movement? Uh, there, there really wasn't a lot of human movement uh, as we went into some of the houses. Um, you, know, we'd obviously encounter the people that, that live there, uh, but there was kind of a little shop area you know like a little marketplace that was maybe mm -hmm. two blocks long uh so it wasn't very big but there was nobody there um usually as we kind of came through the area you know a lot of the civilians would they would just leave um which we probably should have realized that that was a, a bad sign uh, i was gonna ask is that <laughs> like what is that a is your as you're moving is that a good thing typically or a bad thing um you know i Looking back on it now, right, like you see that if you come into the area and then, then all of a sudden the civilians that were there want to leave and kind of, you know, just go away, that's probably a, a bad indication uh, of the area, right? Um, yeah. But there really weren't a whole lot of people. Um, and honestly, a lot of the that tribe, which we've, we learned later, had um, fled to, to Jordan, um, cause it's part of a, a large, you know, there's kind of the hierarchy of tribes, right? So mm -hmm. the, the mega tribe, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the correct term would be, right. But that, that larger tribe, um, had a big presence in Jordan. So those people were, had fled that area when the, uh, insurgents had come in and Al Qaeda in Iraq was really operating in the area. A lot of them had okay. fled. Um, so there just wasn't a whole lot of people in the area. Okay. Um, so at what point do you first make contact with enemy fighters? When do you first take fire? So it's probably um, shortly after first platoon kind of got in position, right? So they had, half of their platoon was up maybe a thousand, you know, meters away um, in their strong point. Uh, the other half was with, uh, with me and our strong point kind of in the center and they just started getting some sporadic kind of harassing fire. Right. So nothing, um, too accurate. Couldn't really identify where it was, but they just kind of kept getting, um, small arms fire, uh, kind of infrequently. Right. And then, um, at some point it got a little bit more intense and we, we took our, uh, first casualty, one of the, Privates in in first platoon was was wounded, um, 
the a gunshot wound. And so we, you know, started kind of the figuring out how to evacuate him, right? And our initial going in plan was to um, have aerial medevac uh, come in and, and extract any, any casualties that we had. Um, so that's what we started to, to set up. We had, it was up just to the northwest uh, of my location. And one of the squad leaders, you know, his task was basically to go out, secure the LZ so we could call in aerial medevac and um, extract the, the casualty. Right, because that was that was the plan, and so that really kind of became the focus because we weren't heavily engaged at the time, right? So it was a point where we could evacuate the casualty. Um, and at that point, that's when it really uh, the intensity of the attack really picked up, right? So um, that squad barely made it outside of their uh, strong point before they were in a pretty good firefight. Um, so now they started receiving fire uh, at our location where I was at in the middle with third platoon. We started receiving some, you know, uh, harassing fire, I would call it. And then my second platoon, which was up to the north uh, east, they got you know, into a pretty decent firefight as well. So now that kind of all three of my elements are, are engaged, I've got a casualty that I've got to evacuate. Um, and we're just trying to kind of assess the situation and figure out where where everybody's at, um, where the enemy's at, and so we can lay some effective fires on the, the enemy. And how, so you've got three elements. How far apart are these three elements? Uh, each of them is probably about a thousand meters apart, right? So if I had to guess, we were spread over about two kilometers total. Um, okay. And we're, and the train is such that we can support each other, right? We can see each other uh, from where everybody's at. Mm -hmm. um, but at, th at that point, it really almost becomes three independent uh, engagements as we go. And you're in the middle of these three Correct. Groups? Yeah, no. So I'm in the middle of third platoon, uh, basically just on top of a rooftop, um, you know, trying to assess the situation, help out, push any assets that we can get. Um, and, and at this time, right now that all the elements are in uh, – in contact, you know, we reported up to battalion that there's troops in contact, and so now we start getting all sorts of uh, ISR and air assets start to to come on board. And luckily, we had a Marine Corps Anglico team attached, yep. um, which is great because one of the you know one of the officers is an actual pilot, right? So he's got a great perspective, and they got some great NCOs uh, that can start controlling that for me. So I've really got them focused on. Uh, you know, using the air assets we have at this time just to try to see if they can help identify some of the targets in the area. Yeah, that ties in really nicely with um, an episode that we just released that with a Marine Corps officer who was uh, part of an Anglico team. He was a forward air controller um, embedded with an Army unit in Ramadi. Uh, also in 2006, he told a story from earlier, I think in June, July, uh, during the summer. And we talked a little bit about how important that is that um, as a forward air controller, he's also a pilot. Um, and so it just has a, a, you know, that much more of a nuanced kind of understanding of the capabilities of aircraft and, and, and what they can bring to bear in support of troops on the ground. And it's just an incredible resource to have, uh, embedded with you, I, I would imagine. So what's the, what's, the, what's your sort of decision point at that point? You've, I, presumably you've now, you've reached this inflection point where you've transitioned from 
you know, just sort of sporadic harassing fire to now starting to understand that, hey, this seems like a coordinated attack on the part of the enemy forces. Uh, what's your what's your kind of priority at that point? Yeah, so and that's where, um, you know, as a company commander, you got to be thinking, you know, and even a platoon leader, right? You've got to be thinking two or three steps ahead of what's going on. And so, um, you know, my focus was still on getting the casualty out, right, as, as soon as we could. I, I knew that air was no longer an option, right? I mean, I know, I, I think every, um, you know, everybody briefs, oh, we'll just use air medevac, and that'll be the solution, and that'll always work. Um, but I think it rarely actually happens uh, like that, just because the, the situation usually doesn't uh, allow that, right? So yeah. um, I knew that I needed to get my, my XO uh, moving with his team, uh, to start moving up to our location to evacuate uh, the one casualty that we had. Uh, so I started him in motion. I also knew that, um, you know, I had a platoon that was in contact and their platoon leader was sitting with me, you know, about a thousand meters away. Uh, so, you know, that, that PL started moving back up to his platoon um, and he had, you know, two squads with him. So he had half his platoon. So he had plenty of uh, combat power to, to move up there. Sure. And as he started moving up there, um, his element got uh, in pretty good um, in a pretty good firefight as well, right? So they were pinned down in, in a ditch. Um, and what had happened is the the enemy had basically the there's big open field kind of in front of all of our positions, right? So that backed up to the to the river. And it was just a big open you know farming field for you know, cattle or whatever they had grazing up there. And mm -hmm. so um, the enemy was had positioned themselves in there so that they could kind of engage all three locations, right? So is uh, Lieutenant Bateman, uh, Ben Bateman was moving up. He got pinned down along with his uh, squad. Um, it was He was there. And then uh, the squad leader that was moving with him, he actually got uh, wounded as well, right? And um, one of his his team leaders um, basically, you know, reached up, grabbed Sergeant Jackson, pulled him into the ditch with him, um, you know, and potentially, you know, saved his life, right? But definitely helped out. Um, and it was it's ironic because the the team leader before we had left, um, he got in some trouble, and Staff Sergeant Jackson, the one who was wounded, was the one who. Uh, really stood up for him, right, and said that, hey, we, we should keep this kid in the Army. And uh, here is, you know, several months later, he winds up saving his life. Uh, oh. And he wound up getting the, the Bronze Star for Valor uh, that day. And yeah. um, so just kind of really, you know, interesting story of, you know, hey, how, how sometimes taking care of some of those soldiers that may have gotten in trouble, um, you know, pays dividends in the end because they're still good soldiers. They may have just screwed up one time. Uh, but you know, calm, cool under fire. Uh, I think at the time he was a he was a team leader, but he might have been a PFC. But you know, they were like, "Hey, he's the one who can do the job," so they made him a team leader. Um, and so you know, got him. And so now I've got two casualties that I'm trying to evacuate. And uh, you know, really, most of the elements are engaged. Uh, we're taking more accurate fire uh, from where we're at, uh, just trying to identify where the enemy is. 
um, figure out kind of the next steps. And that's when we dispatched, uh, I requested the, the heavy QRF. So we had a tank company that was attached to our battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a, a tank platoon that started to move up with the uh, XOs that they could get into position and um, provide some support for the, the ground forces, as well as help escort the, the XO and his team up so that we could evacuate the two casualties that we had now. How long did it take for the QRF to arrive? Uh, probably wasn't more than 15, 20 minutes. Uh, we really weren't that far from the, uh, from the FOB where they were stationed. You know, it probably felt mm-hmm. like an hour or two uh, that day. Um, but, you know, they came on station. Uh, they had known the area. They had actually been uh, in theater. They were probably on month nine or 10 of their deployment. Right. So they, they had been there for a while and overlapped with us. Um, so they knew the area, they were able to get in position, uh, and they've started, um, a couple went up with the first platoon where Lieutenant Bateman was kind of pinned down in the, in the, uh, trench. They were able to start providing fires, which allowed them to, to maneuver and get back up with their platoon. Um, and they also just with the optics that they have on the tank, they were able to do a much better job identifying the enemy and then passing that to myself and the Anglico team. So then we could uh, bring in some more air assets to help us just kind of identify where the enemy was actually firing from. So how long have you been, um, I guess, engaged by this point? So at this point, you know, it's probably been a good hour or so. Um, And, we also, as when they see the when the insurgents saw the tanks start to move in, um, it's more you know ground vehicles, just the Humvees and stuff with the the XO. They started engaging us with mortars. Um, so they had uh, mortars set up actually on the north side of the Euphrates. Um, they had three or four different mortar positions that could. Uh, range us right and so that added some additional complexity because now that's a totally different brigade's battle space right so now we've got to clear fires through brigade and up to the um the MEF, the marine expeditionary force headquarters that controlled all of anbar um in order to to put some indirect fires right so my fire support nco um along with the fire support team back at uh, battalion was working that coordination uh, to be able to find the targets. Um, my FO from first platoon, he was able to identify a couple of the mortar teams on the north side of the river. Um, and they started engaging them with our own artillery, right? Kind of in a counter battery mode. Um, but there were still mortars that were coming in and, you know, they must've known exactly where our positions are, or had that, uh, the road intersection kind of, as an enemy TRP, right? So they were able to bring pretty accurate mortar fire on our position. Um, and then one of the rounds hit uh, second, the building second platoon was in, uh, and that's where we had our two uh, killed in action casualties uh, that day. So now you've got um, more casualties. You've got three elements uh, from your company. You've got the tanks that showed up as part of the QRF and you've got now some friendly counter battery fire. Um, 
it's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, what was your, what, what was sort of your, what did you perceive your job to be? Was it solely to be, I believe you're still on this rooftop. Was it to be up there to try to maintain situational awareness and exercise command and control of all of these different moving pieces? Uh, yes. Right. So it's really the, the platoon leaders are in the individual fights, right? The platoon leaders and the platoon sergeants, uh, really, in, you know, in some cases, the squad leaders or the team leaders are the ones who are controlling the fight. Right. So as a company commander, I saw it as my job to, um, be the person who's, who's looking a couple steps ahead, uh, providing assets where I can, right. And trying to coordinate this, um, this whole thing, uh, as we go, because now, uh, in addition to the two killed in action in second platoon's location, we had two or three others that were wounded, uh, when the mortar hit their position. Um, and so now there's several people. So trying to get the Kazovac to the right place to pick up the right casualties and get them back to our aid station. Um, you know, that, that was important to try to identify the enemy, figure out where they were at, um, best engage them, clear fires, um, as well as, you know, there's a, not only clearing the, the indirect fires, but also um, engaging with uh, close air support that we had come on station. So we had a couple of Harriers uh, that got on station uh, so they could provide us one ISR. Um, and then we actually used them. They picked up some insurgents trying to um, exfil across the river on a boat, right? So they saw them basically as the tanks moved in, they started to move out. And so the, uh, the Harrier saw that. So then we had a clear fire so that they could come down. They did a quick gun run um, to ensure that, to take that, those guys out, right? So they they engaged the boat going across the river with some uh, with just uh, machine gun fire that they've got on their their aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of my job was to just make sure whatever element started showing up on the battlefield, right, knew where everybody else was, um, had good sectors of fire, right? So made sure, okay, hey, they want to do a gun run, that's fine, but go south to north so that any of the you know rounds would wouldn't hit any of our guys, right? Um, making sure the tanks knew where everybody was at because they could shoot a lot further than any of my infantrymen could. Um, and then just trying to coordinate that aspect, uh, best set the conditions for my, my platoon leaders who were really engaged in the fight. Was it, um, given all of these sort of elements, um, and and also, I guess, the fact that you know, this is not a very clear sort of two-dimensional battlefield at this point. Um, feels like, you know, there's a lot going on in, in lots of different dimensions. Uh, geographically, you know, you you had had a lot of experience you talked about before doing a lot of live fire stuff before the deployment. You know, as a, as a ranger instructor, you had been, you know, involved in six lanes and things. Is this, was this something that you sort of felt prepared for, or was it, was it a challenge to maintain the situational awareness that you need as that, as a company commander, uh, at that point? Um, no, I, I think I was pretty prepared, right? I think, uh, nothing really prepares you for combat, right? Um, there, there's a difference, you know, I had experiences in Iraq as a platoon leader before, so it wasn't the first time in, um, in combat, so it wasn't that that wasn't new, right? And the way we trained as a battalion 
stress this, right? So we did kind of our culminating exercise was a company combined arms live fire, right? So we had multiple elements moving on a, uh, we basically constructed a giant range at Fort Carson, you know, so they didn't have any ranges that were um, large enough for a light infantry uh, unit to really take on. So we just went out and built, you know, plywood buildings out on a range and, and certified that, right? And so we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Also the geometry of, you know, direct fire engagements. So you're thinking about, okay, where's everybody at? What's their range fans? And you're doing that in training, right? On ranges and stuff like that. So it becomes almost second nature. So in combat, you're thinking about those things, right? So you're thinking, okay, if this platoon is shooting this direction, I need to give some margin of safety and that's where I can maneuver in, right? Um, so I think the training really helped out. And in addition, we had, uh, when we trained out there, we had some Air Force support with A-10s. So we'd done close air support. We had used our battalion mortars and artillery. So all of those pieces of really training hard um, paid off, right? And having that focus on training for combat and not um, not the non-kinetic stuff, but really focus on the kinetic fight prepared us for that, you know, one or two days where we needed those skills uh, in remote. Yeah. Um, right. So I think, I think that's good, you know, and yeah, I mean, any, anything you can do and, you know, the, even the, like you mentioned the time as a ranger instructor, right. Really that looking at controlling, you know, multiple elements cause you have, you know, several platoons out there walking at the same time, right. Just to deconflict that type of stuff. But any of those type of, um, training events where you can think about controlling multiple assets, right. And, uh, different types of units, um, help because you're usually just kind of this big conglomeration of whoever's attached, uh, when you actually go to combat. So, you know, when you start that morning, um, your company, this is a planned operation. You're, you know, you have the initiative. Uh, once you start taking fire, there's at least I, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, as soon as the enemy forces you to kind of stop moving or to occupy defensive positions temporarily, the enemy does get at least some form of initiative. At what point did you sort of feel like you had seized back that initiative and were, um, and and you were winning the fight? Yeah, I think um, it took a little while, right? Like it wasn't uh, an immediate, oh, okay, you know, we're just going to overwhelm these guys. This is how we're going to attack and it's going to go help how it's planned, right? Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I think it's kind of the, the airborne, you know, mentality of, hey, you know, you start planning until the green light comes on stop planning until you hit the ground. And when you hit the ground, you start planning again. Right. So thinking about the fact that you're always modifying your plan based on the situation on the ground, because things change. Um, so to be able to do that was, was important. And I would say we finally started um, fully getting a handle and the initiative started to shift. I would say probably about 30 minutes after the, the tanks showed up on station. So even with just their presence, right, this, the enemy that we were fighting wasn't completely deterred by that. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when the, the tanks or heavy armor shows up, the insurgents kind of go away, right? And that wasn't quite the case uh, 
this day that they were still ready for a, a pretty good fight. Um, but once we started to be able to identify uh, the positions, right, and also I think they had the other advantage of they had indirect fire too, right? So they were using their mortars in a very coordinated manner um, on our positions. So once we were able to counter that, uh, get some indirect fire suppressing their mortar teams, um, some close air support that came in uh, a couple times, uh, one to do an actual gun run, another time was just kind of a, a show of force. And again, that's where that Anglico team really came into the play because I wasn't even thinking about that. And uh, mm -hmm. the Marine, I think he was a captain who was a pilot. You know, he's like, hey, how about I just have him come in low and fast and just try to, you know, get into the insurgents decision, you know, cycle. Uh, and so yeah. they did that. Um, and that really helped out. Right. And that's completely non-kinetic, right. They just kind of came in low and, and, uh, started shifting that initiative to our side. Um, and then we just kind of kept building momentum. Right. So we started getting the casualties evacuated. Uh, once I had them back, you know, in route back to the aid station, uh, that was kind of a, you know, one of the things that I was concerned about, um, not only to you know start getting them treatment, but also just the danger that I was putting my XO in, um, you know, traveling up and down the roads with really no no route clearance in front of him. Right, he was just going to the different positions um, and picking up these casualties. Uh, so once you once we started getting that and almost kind of reset a little bit, right? It's, you know, it's no different than like plea boxing when you get punched in the face. You know, initially you kind of take a step back, but then you just got to regain your feet and um, figure out what's going on. And then you can start to go and be a little bit more deliberate about what your actions are um, as you go. And then was there a point at which you realized you sort of broke in the back of this enemy attack? Yeah, it really started um, dwindling down. I mean, it was probably, it was starting to get dark, right? So I, I, did, I don't recall ever looking at my watch to figure out how long it it take uh, the whole engagement took, um, you know, it was probably four or five hours total. Um, but it was starting to become dusk. We started to get settled in a little bit. Um, you know, the, the gunfire, uh, really, really stopped any small arms harassing fire from the enemy. It, it stopped, um, you know, and, and we felt pretty, pretty secure in our positions where we were at. Um, but yeah, it, it just kind of over time, um, you know, I don't, there wasn't some decisive movement, right. Where I flanked the, uh, the insurgent forces or something like that. I think they kind of just continued to, you know, blend back into society. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it started to calm down. I think after we engaged a couple of those mortar teams, uh, and they had spun, a the battalion spun a, you know, mortar finding radar towards our location, uh, and evidently there was one or two that were even further down that we couldn't identify. Um, but, you know, some great work from my forward observers, two of whom also got Bronze Star for Valors that day, uh, you know, because they're sitting there exposing themselves to, to small arms fire to try to figure out where these things are so they can get an accurate grid uh, to engage them, right? But I think all those things kind of came into play in, in just that that training aspect of, you know, being calm under fire, 
calm under pressure really, really paid off. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, that's one of the most obvious kind of takeaways from this is the importance of training, hard training, realistic training and creative training. Because, um, honestly, as you were telling the story and I'm kind of trying to picture this, uh, all of the different pieces, the fact that this is very much a combined arms fight, um, you know, and then you can describe, uh, you know, uh, a training range that you guys built where you did all of these different things and how important that must've been, um, to sort of prepare you for this. Uh, so the training pieces, I think an important takeaway, but I want to ask you a question also about kind of small unit leadership. You know, um, you're an infantry officer, the, the sort of infantry culture, especially at the small unit level is very much this, you know, sort of follow me, um, mentality, um, rightly so. And you mentioned though, that, that this was, you know, the, the fights were these kind of fights that were the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants were sort of leading, um, was it difficult for you to try to kind of stay, you know, above that, um, in a sense and coordinate all these pieces and not, you know, allow yourself to sort of become, you know, just another maneuver element as well. Um, yeah, you know, a, a little bit, right. Um, you know, I think really you get so, uh, so focused on what's going on, right? You can definitely quickly get tunnel vision to worry about your small fight right on, on the building where we were at. Um, because, I mean, we were still getting small arms fire. I was moving around on the uh, the rooftop trying to get a better vantage point so that I could see. Um, and this is where, you know, kind of the other takeaway is, right, always make sure you pick a really good RTO. Um, my RTO, Corporal Josh Mott, Right. He was, uh, um, just a, a great junior NCO. Right. And I think you you can tell if you have the right RTO because your first sergeant usually wants to choke him out on a daily basis. <laughs> um, but he's just, you know, really smart, uh, aggressive, you know, uh, kid who can most of the time he was the one who was talking to the battalion commander for me. Right. And so thinking about that and, you know, his other job was to try to make sure that I didn't get shot, right? Is when, you know, he'd be the one who was looking out for me to say, Hey, sir, you're uh, kind of exposing yourself. You're sitting behind a grate. You should probably move back to that rock wall a little bit, you know, back up a little bit. Um, so you almost get lost in, um, thinking about the bigger picture sometimes and you're not really realizing what's going on right there. Uh, and this wasn't the only time, you know, the only engagement where, you know, he helped me out like that. Uh, but I, I think it's it's important as a leader to not get sucked into that, right? As a as a company commander, um, you know your primary weapon isn't your rifle, right? Even as a platoon leader, uh, it's not a rifle, right? It's your radio. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I I don't know how many engagements I've been in in combat, but I know I've only fired my rifle like three times. Um, and that's because you know, as a platoon leader, a company commander, that's not your job. And so when you start thinking about that, if, if you're engaged in a fight, right. And you're in a firefight, you know, sometimes that's what happens, right. And, and you just happen to be that person that's there. Um, but it shouldn't be your primary focus, right. Your focus should be on the radio, uh, communicating and coordinating things. Um, so you almost have to force yourself to step away from what's going on right there. Um, and worry about the, the bigger picture. 
Uh, and as a company commander, you know, I would, I would do that a lot and I would even force, you know, I'd take my small element, right? So we had kind of a contained command element uh, where there's about five or six of us that would go out and, and even if it was just a platoon mission, maybe going to secure a, we got some intel on something. I would try to go out with the platoon leaders on those missions in my element so that I could be the one that was thinking about those higher things and the platoon leaders could be kind of focused on the mission uh, where they're not trying to do both at, at the same time. Because um, it, it's it's difficult to, to do that. And you really have to force yourself to do, to not get as engaged in the fight, right? Not be worried about, oh, there's an enemy behind that, you know, building, we need to engage them, right? You got to be thinking a little bit broader uh, as you go. So it's definitely a um, concerned effort to do that, right? And you got to be able to think about that as you go. I think that's a, a really important point. Um, you know, it's sort of the, it's it's sort of the, it, I mean, at the end of the day, the the company commander has to be somewhere and chances are he might be with a, a, a platoon leader. Um, when it's not done right, that can create some challenging dynamics, right? Because this platoon knows this platoon leader and trusts this platoon leader. And if a company commander comes in there and starts issuing orders directly, you know, it, it, it taking control of that element, not only is it potentially problematic for the platoon, but you're also missing out on what the company commander is supposed to be doing. Like you said, um, I think I think you described it really well, keeping that sort of higher level of awareness, um, looking at things from on kind of a different plane, from a different perspective. Um, and it's a, it's a really, you know, it's a, it's a leadership challenge that I think, especially for any of the you know, junior officers or cadets that are, are, are listening to this. I think that that's a really important lesson as well. James, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and sharing the story. There's a lot to, uh, that we were, I think, un, or able to unpack about, you know, leadership and, and the importance of training and, um, and various other things. So I really appreciate you taking some time. Yeah, no, John, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.